Well, does everybody recall what I said last week? I told you to meditate on that truth from 2 Peter 1 on how we have been given everything in the Messiah. And I know that you all went home and you sat on your chairs and you said, I cannot do anything apart from the Messiah unless I abide in him. Right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. I did that all week, Eric. I thought about 2 Peter 1 every day, everything you told us to do. Okay. Well, I uh, appreciated the opportunity to speak and it's good to have another opportunity here. I am not going to stay in 2 Peter, of course, because we cannot get through that whole book and we need to move on now. But uh, we are going to travel over to Corinth and we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want to build a little bit on what I was saying last week, but we're going to talk about some different things here. I know Howard did a series through 1 Corinthians, oh... Eight or nine years ago, I know you all remember, right? Some of you weren't even here yet, but uh, I remember Howard did do did, good, did do the entire book. So as we know, we go through books here, which is an excellent way to teach the scriptures. Um, you know, when you're filling in for someone, I I'm not a big believer in preaching on a verse because a verse has a context, and a context the context has to be seen within the whole book. And so it's, it's certainly not something you can do just preaching on a verse. So we want to go over to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to talk about some of the issues that were going on there. Uh, for those of us that have studied 1 Corinthians, I think we, we probably know this was a very dysfunctional congregation. They had a lot of problems. If you just read through the whole book, they had problems of sexual immorality, they had divisions, they had problems with spiritual gifts about, you know, the recognition of what spiritual gifts are about and whether, you know, gifts, it's I've got my gift, you've got your gift, who's got the best gift and a lot of pride issues. So there was just, then we had lawsuits going on there in other chapters. So there's a whole lot going on in this book, but I've decided to uh, just stay in chapter one and we're going to go through uh, verse by verse here and talk about some things. So let's, let's go ahead and pray real quick. Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. And God, we thank you so much for the fact that you've given us uh, your word. We thank you so much for the service today and all those that are, that are here and that put in the time to serve you in any capacity. We thank you for Marcy and her diligence of the liturgy. We thank you for the worship team. Thank you for teachers. We thank you for Andrew doing the sound and just thank you for everyone that's here today, and Lord, we want to commit this time to you. I pray especially, God, it only be you speaking. We pray, God, people would hear from you what you have for them, and I commit, we uh, commit it to you in Yeshua's name, amen. Okay, well, let's take a look here. Let's start in verse 1. Of course, a little background here about Corinth before I start in verse 1. I like to say that. I'll start in verse 1, then I back up to background information. But uh, this issue uh, with Corinth was... Of course, the uh, congregation of Corinth was planted by Paul, and Paul wrote this epistle uh, probably between 50 and 55 AD. Uh, he wrote it actually from Ephesus. That's where he wrote it from while on his third missionary journey. Uh, you know, the issue here was really that Paul had gotten some news about what was going on at Corinth. Uh, he had, of course, had planted this, this uh, congregation, but he'd gotten word that they were having problems, so... That's why, he, that's why he has to address these issues. So Paul has a lot to do, of course, with uh, this entire situation. Of course, he wrote it, so he knows all about it. Okay, well, let's start here in verse 1. It says here, Paul called as an apostle Messiah Yeshua by the will of God 
and Sothenus, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in the Messiah, saints by calling with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. Now, of course, Paul points out here his calling. He does that in a lot of his letters. Remember, his apostleship was under attack a lot. Apostle means sent one. And Paul wants to mention here quickly that he is called as an apostle, of course, by the Messiah. You know, it's interesting when I study Paul and I look at his calling, uh, it's interesting when he talks about this issue of his calling in Galatians where, uh, you know, I don't know, I wasn't here for VSS. I was unfortunately out with the flu that week. It just wiped me out, which never happens. I missed it. But I don't know if the VSS speaker talked about this. Maybe he did in Galatians 1. But Paul says here in Galatians 1, it's interesting about his calling here. He says here, But when he had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So it's interesting that he says here, he's called out, but he talks about how he's called out to preach the Messiah among the Gentiles. Now, we know, of course, Paul went to the Jew first, agree that all throughout the book of Acts, but in Galatians 1, it mentions here how he's called to the Gentiles. Well, it's interesting that Paul's uh, words here in Galatians are quite similar to Jeremiah's. Have you ever read Jeremiah 1? You don't have to necessarily turn there, I'll read it. But it's very similar to what Jeremiah talks about, how God called him out. Jeremiah says here, The word of the Lord came to me before I formed you in the womb. I knew you. Before you were born, I was set apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So it's very interesting. Paul's calling. He talks about how he's called to preach the gospel to the nations. And Jeremiah is the same way. Two Jewish guys going to the nations. So very similar callings. Uh, There might be some tie-ins there when... Paul's talking about his calling there in Galatians. Kind of interesting. So let's move on here. So then he goes on to talk about uh, the issues where he says here, he tells the Corinthians. Now, remember the Corinthians were dealing with all kinds of problems. As I said before, there were divisions, there was sexual immorality, there were lawsuits, all kinds of issues that would really maybe be discouraging in some ways. But Paul says here, he wants them to know, he says here in verses 2 to 3, he says, to those who have been sanctified in the Messiah, saints by calling, with all in every place, call upon the name of the Lord. So he wants them to know, even though despite these problems are happening, you have a calling. Your calling, of course, part of that is you positionally have been sanctified in the Messiah. You know, we have a positional sanctification where we're set apart for holiness. I talked about that last week. And then, of course, we have to struggle and work on how that's practically played out in our lives, how we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I talked about that last week. I know all of you this past week were probably thinking about, why didn't he talk about progressive sanctification, right? He didn't mention those big theological words, and Marcy and I were joking about that. But no, I just want to say, of course, here that Paul wanted them to be encouraged. They're certainly positionally being sanctified despite those problems. And of course, uh, he doesn't want them to forget that. Now he talks about here, of course, how uh, they're supposed to call upon the name of the Lord, the Messiah, our Lord, and theirs. You know, 
we don't want to take uh, that lightly that there's a major shift that's taken place in Paul's uh, thinking here that not only, uh, you know, there's only one God. Of course, he'd worship one God all his life. He was a Pharisee. He knew that they're only supposed to worship one God. But now they can call upon the Messiah as the Lord. That's a major shift in their thinking. You know, there's been all kinds of debates for many years about how this happened. How did a bunch of early uh, Messianic Jewish believers or Jewish people always believed in one God, how they started to worship Yeshua? Well, look, I have a book right here. How on earth did Yeshua become God? Historical questions about the earliest devotion to Yeshua. They're still trying to figure that out to this day. How did it happen? So isn't it great they have something to write about? Okay, so, all right, now let's see here in verse 4. It says here, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Messiah Yeshua, so that in everything you were enriched in him, and all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Messiah was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, who also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of the Lord. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son Yeshua the Lord. Now, Paul has a habit. It's very interesting if you read his letters, even especially First Thessalonians. He always has this issue where he's always thanking God for these congregations, these people there. He's always encouraging them despite the challenges they have. He says it here. We're, once again, we just read it in verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you because of what God's done in you. You know, that's, that's very important because... You know, we should be thanking God, obviously, regularly for the people God brings into our midst. You know, the, the uh, people he gives to us are gifts to the body. And so Paul is the supreme encourager. Of course, he could be very truthful. He could correct people, but he always had that balance with a lot of encouragement. Okay, so then he goes on to say here in verse 10, he says, Sir, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you by my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Messiah. Has Yeshua been divided? What well, Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Now let's stop there for a second. Now, it goes on here to talk about these problems they're having at Corinth, these supposed divisions that are taking place. So we have a little bit of a popularity contest going. We have some people saying that uh, they're identified with Paul. I mean, after all, he was the founder of the congregation. Some people probably were latching onto him, that he's the most important uh, figure here. We have some people that latched onto Apollos. Uh, we read about him in Acts 18, where He's actually debating the, the uh, Jewish people in the public square, and he's quite the apologist, I must say, if you read that chapter. And then we have, of course, Cephas, who was one of the original 12. I mean, everyone wants to follow Cephas. He should be at the center of attention, right? I mean, he walked with Yeshua. He knew Yeshua. We should latch on to him, maybe. And then we have some that say, I am of the Messiah, of Yeshua. I mean, that's <clears throat> probably where we want to be. But actually, when Paul says, I am of Messiah... He's actually dealing with some people who uh, did not believe in any, having any kind of teachers or mentors or anything. They just believed they just needed Yeshua, that's it. And so he was kind of correcting them as well, that that's not what you want. Of course, we want to be a Messiah-centered, but we do need teachers. So 
what happened here that, uh, you know, obviously there were some pride issues. There were issues of division. Now, I looked up a, uh, I was looking, doing some research on this, and I came across uh, Gordon Fee's commentary, and I have a quote by him about what was going on here. If I can find it, I'm on my notes here. Oh, wait a minute here. Let's see here. Well, let's see if I can find it. You're like, Eric, don't you know where your paperwork is? Don't you have it? But he uh, basically said that, um, well, anyway, I've lost it. It's somewhere around here. But anyway, uh, the point is that they're having issues of pride, and they're not being Messiah-centered. And Paul will build on this case. He talks about the wisdom as we go down here. But you know, when we disciple people, if you've ever been heavily involved in pouring yourself into somebody and you've really invested time and you want this person to grow in the Lord, you know, your ultimate goal is exactly what Paul says in Colossians 1. And keep your finger in 1 Corinthians uh, 1 because we're going to go right back there. Go to Colossians 1 for a minute. Just for a minute, I want to look at one thing here. Because, you know, when you pour yourself into people and you want someone to really grow in the Lord through the power of the Spirit, you know, the goal is what Paul says here at the end of chapter 1 here, uh, chapter 1 of Colossians. He says here in verse 24 of uh, chapter 1 of Colossians, he says here, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the ecclesia, the church, and filling up that which is lacking in Messiah's afflictions. Of this congregation, this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit that I might carry out the preaching of the word of the Messiah, of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is the Messiah in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, and that we may present every man complete in the Messiah. And for this purpose I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. You know, that is the ultimate goal. When you're discipling somebody, you don't want them necessarily to follow you, uh, you want them, hopefully, to be more rooted in the Messiah. You want them to be complete in the Messiah. To understand, as I said last week in Second Peter, that you have everything in the Messiah, that he is your center, and he's given you everything, all the resources you need to be a follower of the Messiah. That's hopefully the goal of uh, most people, but go back to 1 Corinthians, just like what was happening there. Uh, we still have some of these issues today where people you know, sometimes can latch on to ministry leaders or uh, very charismatic people. It still happens today, but we need to be careful about that because just as Paul says here, uh, you know, we don't want to form uh, divisions over this. We want to stay centered in the Messiah. Now, when he goes on here, he talks about baptism or immersion. He says here in verse 15 through uh, 17, he says here, verse 14, he says, I thank God Verse 14, I thank God I've not bapt- that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, Gaius, that no man should say, you are immersed in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanos. Beyond you, I do not know whether I baptized any other. From the Messiah did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, <coughs> excuse me, not in cleverness of speech, that the, the, the execution stake or cross of Messiah should be 
not be made void. So, of course, they're having some issues with uh, maybe some um, competition, you know, going around about who had more immersions. There's some issue of, I immerse this person in so-and-so's name. So, Paul takes that away and says the most important thing, not that immersion doesn't matter, immersions don't matter, they do matter, but he's saying the most important thing is preaching the gospel, preaching the Messiah. That is the most important thing, okay? So what Paul begins to do as we move along here in chapter 1, we're seeing that uh, what's happening in Corinth is this issue of human wisdom, okay? We're going to build on this as we go down to talk more about wisdom. We see we're going to contrast this issue of human wisdom and God's wisdom. But what's happening really uh, as we move through these verses here about some of these divisions were taking place is this issue of wisdom and that it's human wisdom, the way they're conducting themselves uh, in this congregation. That's leading to some of the problems they're having. So Paul is going to build on this case, and now we're going to get down to some of the really uh, interesting verses here as we go on through the rest of the chapter. All right, so it says here in verse 18, we spent a lot of time on this, verse 18 through 25. It says here, the word of the execution stake or cross is to those who are, I'm going to say cross because I need to talk about that very clearly, but the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the, in the wisdom of the world, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs in Greek search for wisdom, but we preach the Messiah crucified, to the Jewish people, stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the Messiah is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, if you're like me, and you were raised in a nice mainline denomination, and you don't didn't know anything about the Bible, somewhat, somewhat biblically literate, you definitely didn't know anything about the first century Jewish context of our faith, and you probably knew very little about uh, Judaism in a sense of what they really believe in practice, even though you're raised around Jewish people like I was. I didn't, wasn't like raised in a synagogue or anything. But the point is that uh, if you're like me, you didn't know a whole lot about the word cross. All you probably knew was you saw some people wearing crosses around their necks, or you might see the cross in the congregation you were raised in, or else you visited a church and there were crosses everywhere. And so... The cross really becomes a symbol of like, hey, I'm the Christian and they're Jewish and there's no, no relationship whatsoever. I mean, we're Christians and they're Jewish and that's just the way it is. And that's, that's the way it is today in many cases. But, you know, when we go back to the first century and we think about uh, the word cross and what Paul's talking about here, an execution stake, uh, it was not a symbol of love at all. Uh, you know, today we have celebrities that wear crosses around their necks, and of course people wear crosses around their necks. But I'd be willing to bet if you ask them what that meant in the first century, I'd be willing to bet they don't know. I'm not saying that to be condescending, because if you don't know, you don't know. I didn't know either. But, you know, in the first century, when we think about the cross or the execution stake, and we're on the ground, uh, a Jewish person looking at this issue, 
you know, it's, it's a sign of actually some, uh, shame and embarrassment. Uh, it has nothing to do with love really at all. You know, there's a guy, uh, one scholar uh, named Gene uh, Aubert, but uh, he summarizes the humiliation of those crucified. He says, Crucifixions were usually carried out outside the city limits, thus stressing the victim's rejection from the civic community. Because of the absence of blood shed out of an open lethal wound, which evoked the glorious fate of warriors, this type of death was considered unclean, shameful, unmanly, and unworthy of a freeman. In addition, the victim was usually naked. Essential, too, is the fact that the victim lost contact with the ground and was regarded as sacrilegious. So that's just a little background, but remember the Romans crucified uh, hundreds. You know, this was a deterrent, right? Because when uh, somebody would do something that would cause any kind of problem, an uprising or uh, anything that would break the peace, anything they would do, maybe break a law or just anything in general, uh, the Romans were pretty quick to crucify. So it happened quite a bit. There was many, many, many crucifixions that took place. Now turn with me to, as you keep your uh, finger in 1 Corinthians 1, turn to Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy chapter 21. And this hopefully will provide a little more background here. You know, if you're a Jewish person in the first century and you know, you may say, well, you know, Roman crucifixion doesn't exactly have a lot to do with Judaism because uh, Jewish people abhorred Roman crucifixion. Uh, there was a background of uh, what it meant to have a victim uh, hanging on in, in an open public arena a little bit here in uh, Deuteronomy 21, even though this is not the same as Roman crucifixion. I'm not saying it's the same thing at all. But, you know, when you come to the Torah, in this chapter on capital punishment here, uh, what they do with people, uh, in that day, if you read Deuteronomy 21 and go to verse uh, 22, towards the end of the chapter, verse 22, they had a penalty, you know, for those that uh, broke uh, for capital punishment things, they had a way of dealing with them. It says here in verse 22, what they would do, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death, you shall hang him on the tree, and his corpse shall not be hanging all night on the tree. But you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged or is accursed by God, so that you do not defile the lamb which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So now we have two issues here. We've got the issue of the Roman crucifixion, which is absolutely abhorrent, and then we've got the Jewish background. So you know, you think of Yeshua, and you're a Jewish person in the first century, and you see a figure in uh, the crucifixion scene, and you're basically got the Deuteronomy verse in your mind, you know, uh, most likely you're going to think that person's under a curse of God, right? Because if you obey the stipulations of the Torah, you're blessed. If you violate them in some way, there's going to be a curse or something like that that's going to come upon you. So for some Jewish people, they would see Yeshua and they look at him up there and they'd say, he must be under God's curse. I mean, look at this, right? Now, please, by all means, do not assume that in the first century, it's the typical response that we get uh, most of the time where, well, only the Jewish people wanted a warrior king and they didn't expect the, uh, the humble dying Messiah. Well, at this point, there's many messianic expectations in the first century. We know that there's a prophetic Messiah, messianic expectation. There's a priestly Messiah. There's a son of man expectation. There's 
uh, you know, it's just very, there's a large variety now. We've, we've come across that in the Dead Sea Scroll writings. But it is true that Paul, what he's saying here, that generally conventional wisdom is uh, Messiah being executed by the Romans and hanging there looking at like he's cursed by God is not a demonstration of the power of God. That is not the demonstration of the power of God. So we need to understand for a Jewish person in the first century looking at this and seeing your Mashiach uh, crucified there is not something that's going to be a big attraction, okay? Uh, And so we don't want to necessarily assume that it's a symbol of love. It's not. It's a symbol of shame. As I said, a a symbol of embarrassment, a symbol of misunderstanding. And let me mention this. You know, I read that passage out of Deuteronomy. Uh, After the victim was crucified, uh, many cases, if you're a criminal, which many of them were, uh, they would uh, just lay you down and just kick you over into a pit with a bunch of other victims. You weren't like even given a proper burial. They would just go roll you over, and there's tons of other crucified victims, and you just lay there in the open sunlight. So that's why it's interesting with Yeshua's story. Joseph of Arathia comes forward and is allowed by Pilate to give Yeshua a proper burial. Isn't that interesting? And he's the only one that can afford a rock-cut tomb because Yeshua came from a poor family, right? And so Yeshua is given an honorable burial because uh, of what Joseph of Arathia did. So it's very interesting. Okay, so now it says here, uh, when it talks about the stumbling block, you know, that's sometimes we get the word scandal or scandal on because Paul had to deal with preaching this message. He dealt with a lot of opposition, right? He's preaching this, uh, you know, crucified Messiah. And that is not something that got a lot of, uh, well, hurrah, hurrah, that's great. No, he got a lot of opposition for that. And we can see it's a stumbling block. Now it says here that uh, the Jewish people seek signs. In verse 22, it says, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. (coughs) Okay, now it is also true in the first century, as we read through the Gospels, all you have to do is read through Yeshua's ministry, that uh, many Jewish people were looking for signs, right? They challenge Yeshua. They say, show me a sign. He did signs and miracles to prove he was a prophet like Moses, that uh, he was the uh, fulfillment of a greater prophet like Moses. But we know in many cases they did want signs or miracles. Not so much today, uh, not so much a messianic expectation today, but many uh, people at that time wanted signs, confirmation that he was the Messiah. And then we have the Greeks who search for wisdom, And so Paul's really dealing with, uh, in some ways, two challenges. He has the Jewish people want the signs, the power, and the Greeks who want the uh, the human wisdom. You know, it's very interesting, a contrast there. So in some way, when you think of wisdom, you know, wisdom, uh, God's wisdom is seeing things from his perspective, right? Not our perspective, his perspective. In God's wisdom, he saw that a crucified Messiah in the first century is what is uh, the best thing for humanity. That is God's wisdom coming through here. Not our wisdom, not the Jewish people's wisdom, not the Greeks' wisdom, but this is God's wisdom, okay? Now, he goes on to, um, oh, let me just uh, back up here. Of course, let me talk a little about the Greeks. Okay, so Paul's dealing, of course, with the, uh, the Greeks. You know, he says here, in verse uh, 19 to 21, he talks about the wisdom of the wise, the clever I will set aside. He says in verse 20 to 21 to 22 here, where is the scribe, where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the wisdom of the foolish of this world? 
So in Corinth, it was a very cosmopolitan city. There are a lot of ideas going around, a lot of philosophy. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. And the Greeks, of course, uh, believed that uh, through these idea structures and these philosophies, they were, that was their superior form of wisdom, right? And Paul's dealing with that as well. So we have this uh, issue with the Greeks. Now, what Paul's going to do here is really, when he's building on this, I see a lot of applications for today, okay? So let's go on. We're going to spend some more time, but let's go on and read 26 and on, and then we're going to kind of bring this all around here. But he says here in verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that they were not calling many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame, shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that you might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God, but by his doing, your Messiah Yeshua, who became to us the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts in the Lord. Now, one thing we don't want to take away from these verses, verse uh, 18 and on, is that uh, God is against, uh, you know, all forms of uh, reasoning, okay? What he was dealing with the Greeks, of course, is a form of hubris. It's a prideful form of reasoning, right? They're trying to reason their way through everything, right? But he's not against all reasoning because we read in the book of Acts how he reasoned with the Jewish people in the synagogues. And, of course, uh, he reasoned with his audiences, but, uh, you know, today, you know, we need people, of course, in academia. We need believers in the arts. We need believers in scholarship because that is where uh, people form their idea structures. And so we need Messiah followers in those places, being salt and light. So Paul's not condemning, like I've, I've read in many people taking it this way, he's condemning any kind of like reasoning. You know, we don't want to read this chapter like, well, you know, it's just foolishness and God's against all form of human reasoning. No. When we find our identity in God and know our reasoning comes from God, reasoning can be used in a very, very powerful way, in a good way, right? In a positive way. Okay. Now, as he goes on here in verse 26 on, which I just read, um, you know, what Paul is really doing is he is showing that if God's not the starting point, God's wisdom is not the starting point of knowing reality. Is really, you know, God is not the starting point of everything. There's going to be problems, right? And we have that problem today, of course. We have mass confusion in our culture when the wisdom of God is taken out of everything. There's no God. We have confusion about sexuality. We have confusion about gender. We have confusion about this. We have confusion about that. And it's just creating uh, chaos everywhere. Because, you see, when you remove God out as the starting point of knowledge and the starting point of forming a worldview and the starting point of forming how you view reality, forming how you view reality, it just doesn't work, okay? It leads to all kinds of confusion. So when he says here, as he goes to the end here and he talks about this issue of boasting in the Lord, it's very interesting that when you go to that verse... Uh, towards the end where he says, let him who boasts in the Lord, he's going to Jeremiah 9. Look at Jeremiah 9 and what Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9 says here when he talks about boasting in the Lord. And this will play right into what Paul's trying to do here. Jeremiah chapter 9, he says at the end 
of Jeremiah 9, remember I just read here in 1 Corinthians, he talks about boasting in the Lord. But he says here in Jeremiah 9, in verse 23, one maybe we're all familiar with, in verse 23, he says here, Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and he knows me, that I am the Lord who executes loving kindness, (coughs) justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Through Paul, as Paul's saying here, that Wisdom, the wisdom of God, uh, of course, is the crucified Messiah. The wisdom comes from God. He's really building a case here that the first priority of life is to understand is that knowledge of God is a starting point for everything, knowing God. When we know God, everything can fall into place here, right? If we're going to be like the Greeks uh, here, where basically they put uh, reason above everything else, it becomes almost like an idol, it leads to problems. If we simply look for power in the world, you know, we look to signs only, we look to uh, the power of this world to please us, that's going to lead to problems. But, uh, you know, when we make God central, we make him the starting point of everything, things will work out. Now, he says here in verse, uh, let's see here, verse 30, he says here, by doing this, you are a Messiah, Yeshua, he came to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, right? Now, how, how amazing is this? That in the Messiah, what God has done through his wisdom, he's given us righteousness before him. That means we can sit in front of God or stand in front of God, being righteous before him positionally. We are sanctified, meaning we're declared holy, right? We can just sit in front of a holy God, come into the presence of a holy God because of what the Messiah has done. And we are redeemed. I talked last week about how Peter said he was a doulos, right? He was a slave of the Messiah. He was brought out of how he used to formerly live, but now he has a new identity. He belongs to the Messiah. He is actually a slave to the Messiah, not a slave to sin. That's what happens with us. We come out from being a slave of sin into being a doulos of the Messiah. He owns us now, right? We don't own ourselves. He is our Lord and Master. So this is what the Messiah has done, those three things. So what we want to take away, you know, some things here from this chapter, first and foremost, are we willing to be identified in the Messiah? Because if you look at um, chapter 2, I'm not going to read all of chapter 2, but I'm just going to read, if you have your Bibles open, since you're in 1, look at chapter 2, verse 1. It's right there in verse uh, 2, verse 1 and 2. It says here, when I came to know you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing about nothing among you except the Messiah and him crucified, right? Paul's goal in life was to know the Messiah in his death and his resurrection, right? And that is what we want to do. We want to realize, of course, that the Messiah is the wisdom of God, but daily we are identified in his death and resurrection. Now, does anybody have a, I don't know if you have that bracelet, you've seen them around, what would Yeshua do? You know, we see that a lot. That's very popular. Uh, what would WWJD? I see it a lot around. And it kind of is like the catchy way of saying, well, 
you know, what would Yeshua do in this situation? I'm in this situation, what would Yeshua do? I'm supposed to think, what would Yeshua do? Well, there is some truth to that, but when we come to know the Messiah, we receive the Spirit into our lives, we have the mind of Messiah, we do see wisdom from God's perspective. We have a new way of viewing reality. We see things differently. But, you know, I'm not too sure that uh, 24-7 that I can remember every second to say, what would Yeshua do here? What would Yeshua do here? What would he do here? I mean, you know, I try to think about it, and I know I have the Spirit helping me, but, uh, you know, so there's some truth to those little bracelets, but in some ways, I don't know if I'd know what Yeshua would do in every single situation, moment by moment. I just don't know if I can figure that out. I mean, I have the Word of God. I have some information about Him. God's given me revelation in the Word, but, you know, sometimes God, you know, He wants us to use common sense and, you know, of course, pray and be in the Spirit, but, you know, sometimes you just have to make choices, right? And, you know, I know we think today that wisdom uh, comes to us maybe uh, through words of knowledge and words of wisdom, and, you know, God's giving us revelation 24-7, but I'm just not sure maybe if I'm spiritual enough to live in that realm 24-7, okay? So we need to realize, of course, that we have wisdom, but, um, you know, we just want to be careful about that. Okay, so... What I want you to take away from this, of course, is one, that God's wisdom is not our wisdom. Of course, the Messiah crucified today is still not wisdom to people, right? If you ever talk to anybody, you know, some Jewish people haven't even thought about it. But when, if you do talk to them, the conventional view is that when the Messiah comes, Jerusalem will be at the center of the earth, the Gentiles will flock to Jerusalem, the Jewish people will be gathered back to the land, there will be peace there. Uh, Israel won't be hated by the nations, which they are in many places. And, you know, there's uh, not a lot about uh, crucified Messiah there, even though there's some scriptures to back it up. But, and then we talk to non-Jewish people. You know, they laugh and scoff. They say, well, you know, I don't need God. You know, I don't, that's not wisdom. You know, my wisdom is I do my own thing, and I'm a good enough person, and I can uh, live a good life, and my goal is to live the American dream. I'm just going to accumulate and accumulate, and accumulate, and then I'm going to retire and die. Okay, well, that's the American dream wisdom, and let me say that the gospel will set you free from that, if you understand the gospel, okay? And so we just have all kinds of wisdom around. We have false philosophies everywhere. We have, still have the empiricists. We have the pragmatists. We have the rationalists. We have all kinds of philosophical systems everywhere, and people are just not getting the wisdom of God. So isn't it nice that we can walk out here and we can actually, through the power of the Spirit, show people God's wisdom. God's wisdom is the Messiah. God's wisdom is that the way to move through life is through uh, humility. Because obviously anyone dying on a Roman crucifixion stake represents humility, right? It's shameful. And we are identified in him. We're going to be misunderstood. We're going to be rejected. People aren't going to understand us. And I can say, uh, you know, Beth Messiah, out of all the congregations I've seen, uh, you know, is the epitome of misunderstanding, misunderstood. You're always explaining yourself. But, you know, think of the Jewish people that have laid down their lives to start this congregation. I mean, they're rejected by their own community. They're misunderstood, just like today. And, you know, that's a perfect example of how they are identified in the, what the Messiah has done for us as the wisdom of God, that humiliation of what he went through, okay? So that is a good example for us to learn from, okay? 
So having said that, let us remember that God is the starting point for knowing everything and his wisdom is perfect. And let us thank him for the wisdom of God, for what he's done through the Messiah. And let us proclaim that wisdom to a lost and needy world around us. Let us pray. Lord God, we just pray today. We thank you so much for the wisdom of God, that uh, Yeshua is our wisdom. We pray, God, we'd see things through your perspective because your wisdom is perfect. And we know, Lord God, that you are uh, much wiser than we are. And we know, Lord God, that uh, through the Messiah's death and resurrection, that is wisdom to humanity. We pray, Lord God, that we would have the courage to proclaim that wisdom to others and to be identified in him on a moment-by-moment basis. And we pray this all in Yeshua's name. Amen.